Welcome to Wage Cucking with JMO. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Wage Cut Podcast with JMO. Um, unfortunately, we could not find a guest this week, so it'll just be me talking to you guys for maybe 40, 45 minutes. Uh, I think we'll talk about the current state of crypto, current state of DeFi, current state of NFTs, and uh, maybe we'll we'll talk about a little something secret, something extra by the end of the episode. So welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Um, and let's get started. Wait, wait. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, Jamo. Um, Who are these guys? Hey, what's up? Hello, hello. <laughs> let's let's spin this on its head a little bit. Let's uh, get some alpha out of you, I think. I think most yeah. of the shitcoin.com audience and the wage cooking with Jamo loyals out there, they want the Jamo analysis. Um, Am I getting and Andreas, you can jump into What is going on? <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> that is exactly it. Yeah, this is now this is now the squeezing out the alpha of Jamo on wage cooking with Jamo podcast. Oh boy, I, I hope I have something for you guys. <laughs> yes. A lot of Pressure uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it's pretty natural to start. You know, the, the word narrative and narratives has become a, like a part of the industry. Before, there's always been narratives. There's always been something that was fashionable. If it's like exchange tokens, ICOs, these kind of things. But now like everyone understands that there are a few narratives that are going on at the same time. And as any level investor, really, what you have to do is just identify the narrative. Don't be too late. And then I guess, follow it, invest in the right things and get out before the narrative ends. Would you say that's correct? How, yeah, would, how would you describe it? I think that's fairly accurate. So I think I think crypto, especially altcoins, are very narrative driven um, just because the, the price action sort of reflects what the community or what the people are l- looking at right now. So as a trader, uh, my general thesis is to observe these narratives and like the ideal goal would be to get in early, but before the, the narrative really catches on. And then also there's a common saying, I think people say it all the time, like sell the news, meaning once like a position becomes too crowded or too mainstream, then you want to be the first ones to exit rather than the, the last one holding the bag. And uh, what, sorry, go on, Andreas. No, just go, just go ahead, Blake. I was, cause I was just writing down a list of, uh, of <laughs> things where I wonder like, when did it start and when did it end? Uh, Blake, go ahead. Yeah, I know. I want to ask, obviously you don't have to give away your current alpha but what waves have you been riding right now where you uh, is there anything you you see that's a a current narrative that you think is coming to an end maybe Uh, i think there are a few right now um one being the sort of ancient chinese coins i think there's a current narrative for the the chinese market getting back into crypto and then you have coins like eos filecoin basically ones with big vc funding for maybe like the 2017 to 2019 cycle that have sort of died off that may have some legs and run up a bit. The other major one that I see people talking about is the Ethereum uh, layer two, specifically now the the ZK rollup uh, narrative where there are a lot of layer twos that are deploying using ZK rollup technology. So like from the older ones, you have stuff like Loopring, you have a bigger one would be ZK sync in in testnet right now. Um, And then you have stuff like Immutable X and like a a few others uh, that are specifically purpose but still use the ZK technology so I think that um, I think Mina is another one that um, has similar properties so if, if the narrative is that 
ZK rollups are the future of Ethereum scaling, then it's never too wrong to look at a bag of, of, of various ZK rollups or coins that represent ZK technology and, and fire a position in a few of those. I remember, I think I read this in some, there's some new uh, DeFi newsletter I, I read on Substack. It's not very good, but they did have a point of uh, recycling coins, if that makes sense, because um, they, they were making this point. Watch out for coins that are being recycled to fit a new narrative or a new cycle, because there's a lot of investors, especially VC investors, which I think are often maybe not the most intelligent investors. But so if you if you buy their tokens now under just being recycled, just like they're just saying, hey, we're still here. Or I guess if they're recycling and so they're relaunching a failed project on a new chain, then you would become, you know, there's so much money locked up and it's been locked up for a long time. And these people are really looking to cash out both retail and VC. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that's dangerous? And like, how, how would you deal with that? Yeah, so it, it makes sense for the VCs that have these large positions. Basically, like the, the big VC funds, their strategies in the past few years are to get in early stage, the early rounds of these deals, which are mainly token based, meaning you don't necessarily get equity in the company you're investing in. And not only that, like the company that you're investing in may not be actually generating real revenue or real profit, um, but the, the token value, even if the token doesn't have a specific use case or isn't related to the, um, I'd say to the success or the the overall profit of the company it still has value. So then like VCs end up holding a lot of these bags of tokens of projects that have sort of, the, the hype has died down and they don't know what to do with. So they are, they're obviously at some point looking for exit liquidity. So the, the best thing they can do is to, uh, like you said, recycle these projects into the into the, the current market as, as, you know, like new hype cycles, uh, new, new trading cycles and find some exit liquidity if they can generate enough hype or enough interest in their in their old projects how would we spot that and how would you avoid it like um for example you mentioned eos and filecoin so i'm not mm-hmm. very familiar with eos i know i think it was supposed to be this like everything chain back yeah. in the day uh, yeah. like omisa go probably was supposed to do everything yeah and separately filecoin i think might be different because i've heard some whispers over the years in like more technical circles like mm-hmm. coders who make who make actually make chains saying they filecoin actually has done something what do you think about those two? Uh, so specifically with EOS, um, EOS is a pretty dead chain. It's supposed to be a, I guess, like multi-purpose blockchain, sort of the way that Vitalik describes Ethereum or generally used blockchain, I, I think is the term he uses. So like the, they have like a smart contract layer where you can deploy dApps. And if, if you look at the list of dApps that are deployed on um, EOS, there are quite a few, but most of them are these super scammy gambling apps based in China. EOS also did like the big raise, I think in 2016 ever, that I think they raised something like $4 billion and they got slapped by the SEC with a, a $24 million fine for uh, selling securities. So they still profited qu- quite a bit on that. Uh, Filecoin specifically is supposed to be a um, decentralized storage network. I, I don't know too much about the technology. From what I understand, it's supposed to compete with stuff like uh, Amazon Web Services or you know the, the general online storage applications. Uh, basically, the, the token grants you a certain amount of decentralized storage where your, 
your data is encrypted yet stored over like a chain where the, the chain is supported by a bunch of nodes that are sort of decentralized around the world. So there isn't one central point of failure. They also raise like a ridiculous amount, I think around 2016, like I think they raised something like 170, 180 million. Although their their ICO, I think was a bit more public, although you had to, you had to KYC through, uh, I forgot the name of the site, but but there is like a, it's sort of like a Y Combinator site where um, investors can KYC and then gets uh, some sort of deal flow. But a majority of Filecoin allocations were were sold to big VC funds, specifically big funds in China, I believe. So they're holding quite a bit of uh, Filecoin right now. So would you say that for people looking to invest, I mean, I don't know if we're in the new cycle or not, right? I mean, we are in the new cycle, but I don't know if we're in the up part. But would yeah. you say it's, it's dangerous to get into EOS or Filecoin because even if it does great, there's just so much need for exit liquidity. Yeah, it's. I see it less of an investment and more of a short-term trade. If you have okay. these positions, you're not investing or you're not buying these tokens for the long-term success of these uh, projects. You're not banking on the fact that EOS will suddenly overtake Ethereum in, in terms of dApps and, and smart contracts and whatnot. Sort of banking on like a short-term narrative. Um, a lot of these tokens will move in unison with each other. Um, so if one moves, the other will move. And then you have a, a decent short-term trade where you can ex- exit at a profit within, I don't know, like a few months time frame. I, I don't know the question. I don't know the question because obviously the, the Chinese narrative, that seems to be like, that's been so recent, right? So are you, are you purely keeping up with these narratives mainly through Twitter or how are you... How are you keeping on top of this stuff? Like, what, what would you? How would you tell people to keep on top of it? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm mainly following on Twitter. Uh, are you talking specifically about like general narratives? Yeah, I, yeah. I think, I think looking at like Twitter, like what, what people are saying, like basically maybe a handful of Telegram groups, like Discord groups, to, to see what kind of discussion is going on. Uh, I think that'll give you a general sense of where people's heads are at in terms of like what they think is going to go up, what they think is going to go down. For for trading these positions specifically, um, I think there's a lot more that goes into it. For example, a, a lot of the stuff I do is just look on chain where like, if you look at the big wallets, a, a lot of them are, are public, especially like the big VC funds or, or the big trading funds have pretty public on-chain wallets. So you can just look at the token movements to see if they're accumulating, see if they're exiting their position and stuff like that. There's also like a lot of wallets that specifically in the past have had very profitable positions. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like um, uh, let's say a coin gets listed on Coinbase and 24 hours later, one wallet accumulates a ton of that coin only to sell after listing. Then you can determine that maybe that person who's operating that wallet sort of knows what they're talking or, or with what they're doing sort of has some inside tracker inside inf- information so the then you can just flag that wallet and look at the the token or coin movements within that wallet and base some analysis out of that so i i think that's fairly important to not rely completely on like what people are saying because a lot of people say a lot of things also a lot of there are quite a few of people larping or a lot of irrelevant people that aren't really big players but 
for some reason have like these these huge opinions that uh, they they think are true they think are valid so i mean you see twitter accounts set up like a couple hundred thousand people following them where the person has literally no idea what they're talking about but they're they're just spewing nonsense so it's it's important to be able to to filter the noise from like what what's actually going on nice yeah i guess right. um, i guess usually when you find a referral link that's a really really bad sign yeah <laughs> 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 I'll continue with what Blake said. So I guess this is a Chinese narrative, which is crypto is coming back to China. And if, you, if you're not there first, you're going to miss it again. Yeah. But there's a second one, which is Hong- crypto is coming back to Hong Kong. And if you don't, <laughs> if you don't get that one, you're going to yeah. miss that too as well. I mean, the Chinese narrative, I have absolutely no idea. This is so, it's so hard. Language barrier and all the fakery. Yeah. So... So unless you can comment on that, then I'm more curious, what do you think about this, um, the Hong Kong narrative? I mean, there's a few people running it. Arthur has definitely been doing it. Uh-huh. And I think I saw something just the other day, Justin Sun also, who is promoting this narrative of a Hong Kong crypto hub and how do they stand to benefits? Like what what are people actually shilling? Uh, what's the alpha in that? Um, well, it's I think it's sort of similar to basically any of the, the major cities or major countries that are, are trying to welcome crypto-related businesses uh, into their country for tax reasons or, or just to increase GDP or whatever. So we'd be basically what they're saying is that like Hong Kong will be a hub for new crypto development and there's going to be tons of stuff coming out of Hong Kong. I, I sort of believe it. I, I mean, if you look at the companies or the funds based out of Hong Kong, there, there are quite a few. Like I know Arthur's been there for quite a bit, right? BitMEX has an office. I don't know if they still have that office, but the, the, they haven't. They have an office, like one of the the bigger offices in Central, where basically it's the area of Hong Kong where you're going to pay the most in the world per rent. So they probably had one of the most expensive offices in in, in the world there. And I don't really know what Justin's doing there, but uh, I tend to believe Arthur because I don't know. Arthur's been right in the past more than he's been wrong, and and he's been. He's done quite a bit of business there. And um, the, I mean, I was asking about Hong Kong because I was spending a lot of time there. I, I wasn't there as early as Arthur or anything during the, that boom, but I spent a lot of time there. And the reason I left and many others is because they became very hostile to many things. They became hostile to, in Hong Kong for one, Chinese did. But number two is it fell out of favor. Crypto fell out of favor in Hong Kong. And there yeah. was talks of crackdowns and, you know, they weren't going to protect the businesses that were there anymore. A lot of people people move to or move to or establish in Singapore. Yeah. Even Singapore is like sort of cracking down. Like I think there's, hmm. there's, there's these constant ongoing things where the cities or countries say that they're crypto friendly. And then like, like for example, in Singapore, I, I know a lot of crypto companies are based out of Singapore now, but uh, I know a, a lot of the crypto companies that are based out of Singapore aren't, uh, licensed or registered to even operate in Singapore, that they, they just have like the the company there. Um, and then also Singaporean banks are quite difficult to deal with. This is from like personal experience and then dealing, uh, talking with uh, quite a few of my, my friends about Singaporean banks. Like I know a lot of them got their banks shut down for, for doing like one or two crypto transactions uh, through pretty major exchanges. It's, it's not like they're they're wiring from like these small offshore banks. They're, they're wiring, I don't know, like a Credit Suisse or something 
something like that Silvergate and they, they get their account shut down because they're dealing with crypto. So um, it, it's hard to say which areas are actually conductive to to these new crypto companies just because they could say one thing, they do another. So maybe maybe we should be shorting Singapore-based crypto exchange tokens then if we're uh, trying to get really macro with this. Uh, <laughs> that's my bit though. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case because if there are crackdowns in any in any of these um, in any of these major cities where there's like a lot of crypto-based companies, they could just move to like another city. It, it's not like there. I guess if you're incorporated somewhere, it's not that difficult for you to move somewhere else or to to register or be incorporated somewhere else. And a lot of these companies, even if they have offices say in Singapore or say in Hong Kong, that they're based out of like Cayman or like Antigua or BVI or stuff like that. So it's sort of allows them the freedom to sort of move around the world wherever countries allow them to operate. And then also like these these companies, a lot of the day-to-day work is done online. So a lot of these people can just work remotely. So it's not, I don't think it's a huge issue if yeah. some of these like cities or countries start cracking down. I, uh, I'm I, just going to go down my list here, if you don't oh, mind, yeah, go like, You keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a list, too. Uh, like, yeah, you go for your yeah, list. I want to talk specifically about, um, so uh, my friend Ben, who's the CEO of Bybit. So Bybit has offices in, in Singapore, and Bybit isn't allowed to operate in Singapore. So a, a lot of the... I guess a lot of the the younger, let's say, interns or lower level people that wanted to get into crypto couldn't trade on the exchange they were working for. So they were recommended FTX. So because they were based in Singapore, then they couldn't use FTX. A lot of a lot of the employees had quite a bit of balances on FTX as their main exchange, and Ben was Ben was nice enough to put together a fund within Bybit. Shout out to Ben, but he, he basically uh, I don't know I don't remember how much the amount was, but he he basically helped cover at least some of the losses for his employees nice. to a certain amount on FTX, uh, just because he he didn't want to see them starve yeah uh, i don't know if you read this too but uh i saw something i believe this week or last week about hong kong allowing people in hong kong as well to trade on exchanges and use crypto products no really i don't, I don't know no. i don't i don't really follow that stuff like i i follow the the japan news a little bit for the past like few years just because it's been interesting so so basically it, it in japan well i i guess that the biggest player was ftx and then they got shut down there that they were forced to buy an exchange i think it was called liquid and rebranded as like ftx japan but it was a really really sh- like I, I i looked at the user interface uh, i looked at like the the coins being traded it, it was a really really shitty version uh to a point where some people you and i know moved out of japan because they they couldn't trade trade on FTX, and the, there are quite a few uh, big crypto businesses that are still based in Tokyo. So I think it's a pretty interesting dynamic as to what's going on. A different one. <clears throat> we were talking about. Uh, we mentioned Arthur Hayes. He was promoting GMX pretty heavily. And for mm-hmm. those who have been sleeping under a giant rock, it's a Dex on Arbitrum. Um, it's also on. Uh, it's also on Avalanche. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. That's true. Do you think the GMX trade has become very crowded? Yeah. What What do you think about GMX? I mean, Arthur has 
been promoting it a lot, and I think you have as well. It's I think it's been a bit crowded, but I think GMX, the token itself, operates differently than quite a few other tokens. Its intrinsic value uh, can be determined. So, so basically, the GMX token is the, the token for the GMX exchange. And holding the token, you get, I believe, it's 30% of the, the net fees paid on the platform. So as long as the platform is doing quite a bit of volume, there's always going to be inherent value in the, in the GMX token. Uh, I haven't really looked at like the, the dollar value analysis of the GMX token now versus the volume or the the, the market cap versus the volume. But uh, I, I think the, the narrative for that is a bit different because obviously if volume suddenly fall off on Arbitrum and no one uses Arbitrum, then I, I think the GMX token will, will crash regardless of what narrative is going on. Mm, so it's uh, it basically acts a lot more like equity in a company because you're yeah. getting, I mean, they're not going to ever use those words, but you are getting something that smells slightly like dividends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're getting a straight dividend, right? You're getting literally 30%. I, I, I didn't call it that. GMX lawyers, I did not say that. I said you're getting a liquid staking reward, whatever. Um, was, was it was it over that though? So don't they provide, there's some liquidity provision stuff in there, right? When they're working with DEXs or there's something going on in the back end that I, I don't really understand. But I know something about they were supporting with G, GMX were power like behind liquidity on a on dexes or something like that am i right i I think it's like the other way around right like okay so gmx has a product called uh glp which is basically liquidity on the the gmx exchange i mean it operates differently than like the standard like automated market maker maker like something like uniswap or Trader Joe on AVAX or, or QuickSwap or whatever. So it, it, instead of it being like a, a dual asset pool that is balanced, it's a general pool with, I want to say like five or six assets. Like I think three of them are stable coins and then you have Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then on Arbitrum you have like a few altcoins, I think Uniswap, Chainlink, and, and maybe there's one other one. And then on, on Avalanche, you obviously have AVAX. So in order to deposit to the, the GMX pool, you need to put in like one of those assets and the amount of GLP that you get or percentage of the pool is based on the, the current balance of all those assets in the pool versus what their target balances. So like, for example, if, if they want the pool to be, let's say 30% Ethereum and it's, it's 32% of Ethereum, if you, if you deposit Ethereum, then you get a worse rate than if you deposit, say, a stable coin, if the stable coin balance is lower than what the Ethereum balance is. So that the, they issue you an, an actual token, the, the GLP token, so you have shares in GLP. And I, I think what's happening is because it's sort of a volatile asset, because you're essentially, and not only is the asset, it fluctuates in price based on its underlying assets, but you're also counter trading people that are trading on GMX, meaning like if everyone is skewed heavily long, which has happened quite a bit recently, and then the 
the price of the assets goes up, then the, the GLP holders suffer a bit because they're they're counter trading the, the traders themselves. So then there are quite a few DeFi protocols that are building sort of market neutral GMX faults. Basically, that they look at the long short skew of GLP or the traders that are trading against GLP, and then they they hedge those positions somewhere else. So the the return may be a bit different, but you can be guaranteed like a certain sense of security or you know like your your GLP price will stay the same and then there's other ones that are sort of doing the exact opposite that are looking to take GLP and leverage counter trade if, if you think that the the average trader on GMX is losing and you only have X amount of liquidity you can deposit into GLP but you're only getting 1x leverage whereas there are there are protocols now that allow you to deposit GLP and, and leverage essentially leverage counter trade against the GMX traders so you get way more rewards but it's also like quite a bit of high risk I think that's a, that's a sign as to when, when a protocol is doing well others are developing their own platforms that are using a protocol to to function themselves i mean that is to me is is the coolest part of DeFi. it's what makes it really separate from uh, from cfi except from from the risk is that you get these like lego building blocks you know mm-hmm. yeah. kind of interesting like so because everything is done on chain and and usually like even in uniswap if you, if you look at uniswap if you deposit uh or a curve is another example if you deposit liquidity in the curve or you Swap. You're, you're granted um, an Ethereum token that represents your share of the pool, so that it allows for people to build stuff using that token, which represents a share in their pool. So, so for example, like oh, I, I think on Uniswap, the, the version three, they, they actually issue you a token and an NFT to represent the the, the position you're. I haven't used the Uniswap liquidity in a while, but I think that's what they do now. So, the because the the token you receive. Um, has underlying value as as a share of a liquidity pool. Uh, People can build stuff that uses that token. Like, for example, you could have a market where, like something like Aave, where you can deposit, instead of depositing a single asset, you can deposit like Uniswap LP tokens and then borrow against that. So that there's a bunch of interesting stuff that you can do mm-hmm. based on what it, the design is. It's weird you just mentioned uh, uh, Uniswap there, because I saw I saw today, it was, he was, he's a founder of, co-founder of OneInch, and he wasn't using um, what's it called? Is it Flashbots, Andreas? Yeah, it's Flashbots, right? Where you where you don't get a front run. He wasn't yeah. using Flashbots, and he lost thirty ETH <laughs> trying to add liquidity on Uniswap, which seems like a massive faux pas for someone who's a co-founder of One Inch. I don't know how I'm, he managed I'm, to do I'm that. Pretty sure I'm pretty sure he just f-ed up if that's the case, because <laughs> on Uniswap you can set your slippage tolerance. So as as long as right. it's within, like, this. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, unless unless like I I think the the standard is 0.5%. So unless it was, I don't know, like a, a 6,000 ETH position that he put in, then maybe he lost 30 ETH. Did you say while adding liquidity or while performing a swap? So he says, uh, hey, he, he added, uh, he tweeted Aiden, Hayden Adams. He said, hey, Aiden, I just lost 30 ETH because I was front run by an MEV bot when I added liquidity to Uniswap. I think it's not just me. Any ideas or I solutions? Don't, I don't <laughs> he said added liquidity. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't understand I don't why it. he's hitting up Hayden. Like it's, mm. well, what, what is Hayden gonna do? He's like, ah, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to Uniswap. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Demo, you can explain. How do you how do you lose money adding liquidity on Uniswap V3? Are you putting the money in a pool that is is uh, in a crazy state? Yeah. So if, if a pool is 
in balanced, obviously, um, and, and you're depositing like oh, uh, a certain amount of one asset or a certain amount of an, another asset. And an MEV bot knows like th that the transaction is executed, that they can front run it and uh, adjust the pool contents in a way where they have a profitable trade where they deposit a certain amount. And then immediately after your liquidity deposit is put in, they, they exit the position to, to skew the, the pool back to its previous state. So I, I just I just read I just read the the comments and Hayden actually replied to him and the guy just f***ed up. He basically he had his yeah. I, I think that happens on Uniswap quite a bit because they, they have a standard slippage tolerance. But if you're trading shit coins, like you, you can't you can't use the same slippage tolerance as if you're trading the the high liquidity coins. So maybe you're you're doing like a decent sized trade on like a shit coin that's illiquid. So you put in like five or ten percent uh, slippage tolerance and then you just leave it and, and forget about it. And then you execute another trade on the same UI. Then that would happen. So it, it's super likely he because of that there's something yeah. to be said about price impact versus slippage people get that wrong a lot mm -hmm. for an illiquid shitcoin you can actually use a very low slippage because there's no trading right yeah so there is, uh, but on a high yeah. liquidity coin you need a higher slippage because it's moving very fast yeah it sounds like he got a quote that was horrid yeah. Uh, and he accepted that quote. Uh, it's then, almost yeah. what it sounds like. It's hard to say. And then like, and then made it worse by going and crying on Twitter to the to the guy that can't do anything about it. Did he? Uh, did he post the transaction? No, I no, he didn't. He did not. But I think they spoke privately. Yeah, he conf uh, Hayden confirmed that he he had his slippage set to thirty percent, which screwed him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, okay, that's all. I'm gonna get us back on track here. Yeah, so we discussed. GMX. Another one that you've been vocal about, which I thought was very funny, is you quite vocal about Aptos. Yeah. I'm going to pull up the price before we talk because otherwise it's a bit confusing for me. But I think it's been quite well known that you've been holding Aptos since, was it since the sale? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you've been public I, about that. I didn't get in any of the VC rounds, but I, I, I bought some like right when it was yeah. released on chain. And I think basically I saw you on Twitter, I'm sure, saying you were going to take profit on Aptos at the same time as like in literally every Telegram group I'm in, everyone's like, hey, is anybody looking at Aptos? Should I be buying Aptos? Yeah, yeah, like, of course. <laughs> so as an example, I'm, I'm looking at it. It hasn't crashed at all, but many things have gone up. No, it is actually down. Okay. And if I see against Ether, how did you decide that was the time to take profit on Aptos? And was it because all these kind of people were showing up <laughs> finally talking about it? Or like, yeah, what made a bit. Also, well, okay, it, it was it was that and a bit that the price had gone up huge amount in a market where coins weren't moving that much. It seemed like a pretty big outlier, but I, I was pretty bullish since day one because it, again going back to narratives so there's this whole narrative coming out of the move chain so it basically chains like aptos and sui that that are developed using move and aptos was it seemed like the best one it was like the first to market if you look on chain on aptos like people are already using it like if you look at sui they i think they announced a test net but then it got pushed back or that there's no firm dates and stuff like that so there's there's a lot to be said about just like getting to market 
at the right time and developing a user base and developing a community at, at the right time. Yeah, this um, this Aptos versus Sui or Sui, I remember this happening because I was at um uh, I was at a some some pretty small Ethereum conference in in Paris accidentally. And it was right then. It was like Aptos, Sui. Like, what's which one? What? 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 How did you pick one? Because you must have done this a long time ago. Uh, well, or did or did you pick both? I, I didn't really pick any because Sui isn't isn't trading right now. It, like, it's it's not it's not oh. launched, right? Yeah, there's, so no, there was, there's no token, right? That was pretty much just done for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a way. So wait, there was one I, more. I, right? I, felt like, I, I felt like people were just idiots. Like the whole thing, like you have all these Ethereum people who are like, ah, oh, this is just another like FTX VC project where there's mm-hmm. like a, a huge valuation for for lock tokens, basically, and it's like released over a certain amount of time. So like before launch, it was worth maybe five, ten billion, like somewhere around there, fully diluted. If you look at like the unlocks but then i don't know why but no one seemed to look at the unlock schedule where the the vc unlocks don't start until i, I want to say november of this year so mm. the the current circulating supply they they have incentive to, to keep the the price high up until at least november because that's when they get their first vesting batch so uh, mm. it, it seemed kind of obvious to me that it wasn't a token that was going to be released and the price would be super high on day one and then go straight down like a lot of these other projects those there was another one as well, right? Wasn't it Linera? I swear there were there were yeah, three. There was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Did that even launch? Uh, no. I have, I have no idea. I, I haven't looked in that I wanted to ask you as well because you mentioned this on the on the last episode, so you guys should check out the last one, which was with Arjun from Mantle. But you you were speaking about airdrops and how they were doing things a little bit differently. Do you think the airdrop narrative? Because you see so many people on Twitter trying to farm airdrops. Do you think that's a pointless thing to be spending your time on, or is it something people should actually be trying to do? That's a good question. Like, if you care about the the small amount of money you get on, like I I don't farm airdrops drops at all like I, i've used like zk sync I, I use arbitrum i guess with zk sync it's a bit different i just wanted wanted to, to test out like see what it was like but for arbitrum like i, I wouldn't use it if, if there weren't legitimate platforms to use on Arbitrum. So like for, for me, I, I don't really bother, but I don't know, like if if you only have like a certain amount of crypto, it's not that cost inefficient to just move some coins to bridge to another chain, just like mess around with the decks, make some minor swaps and stuff like that and sort of hope that they airdrop you. Uh, but I, I just think what, what I discussed there was, uh, I just think the model is like super stupid because why would you airdrop tokens to these people that are just hunting for airdrops? You'd, you'd rather give the the native token to whatever chain you're launching to people who want to use your your chain long term. And like I'd say, a large majority of the people that qualify for airdrops are sort of civil attacking these airdrops, basically making a bunch of wallets doing the the same repeated set of transactions across all wallets and hoping that that there's some minimum requirement per wallet where each of their wallets qualifies for an airdrop and I, I just think like if you're a project looking to launch the current airdrop model to just give these people tokens is is super dumb yeah yeah 
yeah, it just it just seemed a bit broken. There's a few other ones. We don't have time to do them do them completely in this one. But I mean, I I know you you like games in general, so I assume you're hoping really for GameFi yeah to happen. 100%. So I don't follow it closely. To me, it feels like absolutely nothing is happening. Uh, you're the expert. What do you think? Um, I wouldn't say absolutely nothing is happening. There are quite a few games that have gained like a reasonable amount of traction. I think the biggest problem right now is with the games get traction. Um, it sort of means it'd be basically all, all the games on chain right now, their their selling point is like through NFTs or through like in-game tradable items. So if, if a game takes off and has a lot of users, then the barrier to entry for like your average gamer is way too high. Like, like some of these games that have like hundreds of thousands of users in order to like even play at a reasonable level, you need to, you need to invest like between, I don't say like two and $10,000. And that's just way too much for your average gamer. So it's like a, a sort of double-edged sword right now where there aren't like big games that have gained traction where it's just you pay a one-time fee. They're mostly either play to earn or some sort of profitability tied with it with either like owning the, the in-game NFTs or, or owning the, the in-game tokens, the in-game currency or whatever. Uh, the other thing I'd like to see is like actual good games that are able to compete with the, the bigger games produced by say like Valve or Blizzard, Activision mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that, which it, it's sort of, so like the one thing I think uh, gaming projects have going for them is I'd say like 99% of the big game developers right now because of their like rigid corporate structure they're they're publicly traded stuff like that they're never going to dabble in this blockchain gaming stuff that they're never going to have stuff like like a market where people can transact for hundred thousands millions of dollars or worth of in-game assets because it's too much risks for them and they're not like experienced it's, it's not their it's not their niche right so so the, maybe the we'll see smaller companies I, I think that's what we're seeing right now mostly indie companies but the problem with that is that the games that they develop aren't really competitive with the major games because they don't have the the best game developers they don't have the the budget of like these literally billion dollar companies that they're competing with i'm i'm gonna end it with my questions i have loads more written down but i think i'm gonna <laughs> i mean some of these are like entire episodes some of these questions yeah we could more or less uh if we listed some project we could pretty much make an episode just about game five yeah for sure uh, but I'm going to cut it short with my questions so um, so we can do another one. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, let's let's save them. I th I've got I've got more to dive into, but I, I don't want to <laughs> have you guys sat here for another 45 minutes. So, yeah, I guess we'll call it a day there. <laughs> you know, I had a whole podcast plan to do myself, but you guys interrupted me and ruined it. So. Um, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll have to do that one another time as well, then. I mean, it's still your podcast. It's still your podcast. You can uh, you can do you can do your your out. I'm, I'm uncut for my podcast now. <laughs> yes. <laughs>